The Gist is sponsored by OneHub, letting you securely store and share your business files online. Featuring the all-new OneHub Sync, the fastest way to keep all your teams working from the same page. Try it for free, and Gist listeners can receive a special discount by visiting onehub.com slash gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, July 31st, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Did you know that today was National Heatstroke Awareness Day? Sometimes presented as National Heatstroke Prevention and Awareness Day. And I'm only telling you this because for broadcasters, it's National Heatstroke Awareness Awareness Day. I kind of hate awareness days. I mean, heatstroke. Okay, I'm aware of it. What do we do now? Prevent it? Yeah, I figured that that would be part of it. Unless it's coinciding with 7-Eleven's National Here, Have a Cool Beverage Day. I don't know what the awareness of heat stroke is actually getting us. Also, you know, in Buffalo today, it was 82 degrees. But two days ago, it was 91 degrees in Buffalo. Wouldn't that have been a better Heat Stroke Awareness Day? The timing of Heat Stroke Awareness Day now on July 31st, it just seems a little odd. The midpoint of summer is in five days. So it seems like we've gone for a long time this summer without being aware of heat stroke. Don't you want to have the heat stroke awareness? Like, I'm not saying first day of summer, and of course it would have a man bites dog quality in December. I'm not advocating that. But, you know, let's say late June at the latest. Now, you can't have it on June 3rd, of course, because that's Club Foot Awareness Day. And you can't have it on July 28th or July 29th, right? Not two days ago, three days ago. Do I have to tell you those were World Hepatitis Day and International Tiger Day? So be aware of tigers. By the way, that's not a look out for tigers day. That's celebrate tigers. But you know what? Also, I'm going to give you this one for free. Look out for tigers. August 3rd, just a few days to Honey Bee Awareness Day. So be aware of honeybees, look out for tigers, and sorry if you got a club foot. On the show today, in the spiel, maybe not how you were thinking of starting off your weekend, but I am going to talk about those planned parenthood videos, stuff that needs to be said. But first, a conversation where an I champion the TV show Get a Life and the movie Cabin Boy, and I get a lot of pushback from my guest. Now, who is my guest? Happens to be the co-creator of Get a Life and Cabin Boy. We argue a bit about the merits of those films. I like him a lot. Him, not so much. He's a hilarious comedy writer, but in general, a pessimist, Adam Resnick. He came from a semi-suburban town, a tight-knit family, but the signs were there. There were six children, all boys, an obviously overwhelmed mother, a father given to rage, never that comfortable around people, and then there was the early childhood incident involving pornography and a horse. This is the makings of a serial killer. No, wait, I've misread my notes. It's a fantastic comedy writer. Joining me now is Adam Resnick, author of Will Not Attend, Lively Stories of Detachment and Isolation. Adam is an Emmy Award-winning writer for Late Night with David Letterman. And my God, he co-created Get a Life with Chris Elliott. Hello, Adam. Hey, how's it going, Mike? So what about the humor? Where it did, because as you trace in the book, and it's a series of essays, but your life, you can flesh out how you became who you became, except I missed the part where it's like, and then I decided to become a comedy writer. I never thought I would do anything. I had no aspirations clearly up till I was about maybe 20. You know, mm-hmm. when I, uh, my only goal in, for the, you know, the first part of my life was to 
get out of school and finally, you know, be free, be freed from school. Like from the from the moment I went in kindergarten till the last day of my senior year, I hated school so much. So I didn't I didn't know I had no idea what I was gonna do. I could never picture me holding down a job. I never just I didn't know. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Well I, there's I, I, there's a yeah. thing in the book where you go to where Harrisburg Area Community College. Yeah, which is actually a great I mean, if it wasn't for hack, as it's hack. known to the locals, yeah. it is HACC. It's always hack. Uh, so, where are you going for college? What are you going to do for college? I'll oh, probably do hack. hack. You know? It's a two-year school. I had to go to hack for two years to get better grades to, to get to, into NYU. And then when I get to NYU, I instantly realized that film school was not, you know, at least at that time when I went, I could just tell it wasn't going to happen. You know, just like that was not going to help me. It was not going to do anything. I didn't really enjoy it. And. Uh, but I learned about this thing called internships, which I had no idea. It's literally a term that never came up in my house. Yeah. It never came up any in, in any place. Any any place ever was in Harrisburg. Uh, I had never heard that term internship, and I guess I had never seen it in a movie, a book, or heard a song about an internship. I didn't know what it was. It was before the big yeah, yeah, boom yeah. in songs about <laughs> yeah, internships. Right. Yeah. But this kid said to me, uh, oh, yeah, I get, at NYU, he's telling me, uh, yeah, I got this kid in this internship reading uh, scripts for a producer, movie scripts. And I'm like, you know, an internship, what's that? You know, and he explained it to me. And, and so I started walking away thinking, you know, I might have to get me one of these internships. It sounds like maybe that's the way to, to get something going. But I don't, couldn't think of anything I wanted to do except I was – it was the early, the first year or two of Late Night with David Letterman. And that show really, like like everyone else, I was yeah. really, I, like I said, I wasn't a comedy guy. I did not grow up worshiping comedy. I didn't, you know, it was just another thing. If it was something that I liked. Did you even SCTV, get the National Lampoon or anything yeah, like I, that? I yeah, I would look at some of that, but yeah. I wasn't obsessed. I didn't buy comedy right. albums or that Judd kind of Apatow stuff. You were Judd Apatow taping SNL and Right, no, I did back. not right. have that kind mm-hmm. of, like a lot of comedians you hear have that kind of obsession. obsession. I knew good Memorizing stuff. Memorizing yeah. albums, right. When, like on Channel 100, which was an early version of like an HBO that they had in, in Pennsylvania. No, if, if I saw something like the Richard Pryor uh, concert, you know, where he's in the red shirt or something, I mean... I knew, oh, wow, this is the real thing. Like, right. I knew what was good, but it didn't make me seek out that kind of thing. But Letterman had a different effect on me. It wasn't just so much the con- that, that show was brilliant, and it was so different and weird, and, and it just spoke to you in a certain way about phoniness, you know, about... And that's mostly Dave. I remember very much watching that, and the comedy was all great, the show was great, but I just... Dave, in particular, just zeroing in on him, I saw some kind of kindred spirit, and I called the show you know i got the number of the show and uh, i said yeah did you guys uh do you do internships <laughs> and uh they put me on hold and someone picked up and i said you know i asked them about internships and like as a matter of fact we need a writer's intern like immediately we just lost our writer's intern can you come up and meet with the uh, head writer steve o'donnell and, and steve so o'donnell I, yes wow. I, I met with steve and that went very well i loved him right away he was such a good guy so that's how I got my foot in the door, I would say, for, you know, some kind of a career was that moment. And then Dave just completely changed my life. You know, I I eventually got hired as a writer. There was no place that I wanted to write more for or felt that I was more suited to write than for that show. But you working early on, were you working with Chris with the guy under the stairs? No, that was when I got there, he was doing that. Mm -hmm. So I was a fan of Chris's. Okay, uh, uh, so our own Chris Elliott, the, the guy under the seats. Chris, congratulations. That's great. You got the I've lucky number. I've never won anything in my whole life. This yeah. is terrific. Well, that's, we're all very excited for you. That's, that's great. I'm so, I feel great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a vacation, maybe buy a car. What do you think of the odds of something like this? Uh, now, Chris, before we get into that, now, you're, you're a member of the staff, right? 
Yeah, that's actually the, the luckiest thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, well, uh, uh, I'm glad you feel that way, but, but not really, because uh, members of the staff and their families are ineligible to play the lucky number, Chris. And I'm, I'm sorry. You have to be disqualified, Chris. What are you trying to tell me? Well... Later on, Chris and I wrote, it was like sort of the second phase of the stuff that he did, uh, which was not quite as breaking, just more surreal and, I don't know, strange, but it was like the Marlon Brando characters and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, but there you go. Yeah, that, yeah, so, so that was, the, that was the, the sort of the stuff that Chris and I worked on. Bananas! Ah. There we go! Bananas! But that changed my life. You know, it was luck of when I made that call. And then it was the greatest job I ever, ever had. It was, and those were the happiest years of my life. On my deathbed, I will look back and know yeah. that nothing changed that. The, that will be it. So I wanted to ask you about Cabin Boy and Get a Life, because I couldn't be a bigger fan of Get a mm. Life. And one time I met Lori David, who's listed as an executive producer on that show. Right? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yep. And I sang to her the seminal song from Get a Life. I'm a giraffe. I'm a giraffe. And she looked at me like, what the hell are you doing? I don't think she had much to do with the day ins, day outs of Get Alive. I think, you know, when you have the kind of dough that Lori <laughs> David has, you know, I think the last thing in your head is your <laughs> memories from Get a Life and dialogue and things like that. But uh, am I is it me the, mythologizing what I think of that show? Is that show really as good? I mean, I don't know, when was the last time you looked at it? I remember it being groundbreaking i remember it being challenging i remember it being way too early or something out of place for its time but just a tremendous show i can't tell i can't be objective about it it was i and i haven't seen it in when we were mm -hmm. you know editing or something like that I, I rarely watched it when it aired that show was is a tough one because chris and i uh, making it it was not a fun time working on that show there was various uh, controversies and political issues and things like that that uh, made it very uh, hard for us like chris and i were always together in this against all this all these problems was it the uh, network wanting to make it less weird? Part of it. There was, oh, there was a lot of that right off. Yeah, because, you know, the pilot. Uh, I think it was him as a male it, model was the no, first no, one they aired, but not the pilot. Is that it? No, no. I think they aired the pilot first. Uh -huh. I, I hated the pilot, but that was a compromise to get it on the air. So we had to sort of make it a little more, you know, user friendly. But right. it, it was just cutesy in spots and just whatever. First of all, I wasn't really thrilled to go out there and work on the show anyway. It just fell in my lap. Chris at Fox wants to do a show with me. You want to help me write it, you know? And uh, yeah, sure. I didn't think it would go anywhere. And then when it happened, I was like, really? And, you know, part of me was, I didn't want to go. I, you know, I was working at Rockefeller Center and it was just, it was, everything was great. But a little, a voice in me said, you know, you're your own worst enemy. You always will be. So whatever you think you're, you want to do, do the opposite. And I did the opposite and I went out and with the show. And so... And I guess, in fact, it was the right thing to do just because it was, uh, I probably should have just, like, done something that I wasn't used to. But, you know, first of all, we were in L.A., which we hated. Mm -hmm. We were outside of this great protective bubble that we had been with Dave, you know, who shielded us in a, in a way from that awful life of real show business. Because working for, for Late Night with Dave, it... In a way, it felt like show. Like we were putting on this show every night, but it didn't feel like that scummy L.A. show business, you know. Yeah. So as soon as you go out, you never really you have to compromise with. But so I, I don't know the show. So then we after the the pilot came out awful, and Chris and I were were like, you know, we can't, we have to 
this can't be the series. And I was saying, I'm, I'm, I don't even want to be a part of it if this is, if this is what the show is going to be. And we had to sort of bring it back to what it was, which is just the pure Chris Elliott character, the type of character that he would be on Letterman, the type of sensibility from all the sketches and things that he were in that was in going back to 1982. What, so anyway, we wanted to bring some of that. And the male model thing, we had seen this ad, and uh, I think it was the back of Rolling Stone at the time, become a male model. It was a very common ad that yeah. used to be in things. And just looked at it, it was like, and, and it was like, well, that's... That's the next episode, and that actually is the show. Do what? Take your shirt off. <laughs> you said you're a professional model, man. We gotta have this for the ad. Well, nobody said anything about taking the shirt off. Don't worry about it. You're doing fantastic. <laughs> no, no, there it is. Is this what you're talking about? <laughs> no, that's it. I'm not modeling anymore for the two of you. Well, I guess I just have my first taste of the filthy side of this business. Need <laughs> I remind you, sirs? I am a male model, not a male prostitute. <laughs> I'm going home now. To vomit. What about Cabin Boy? Do you have at least fonder memories of that? The no, pr- no, those are much maybe worse. even worse than Get a Life. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was that fell on our lap. Chris and I were not out to do this cabin boy thing. Like Tim Burton was a fan of Chris's, and he liked Get a Life, and he wanted to meet with Chris. And Chris, you know, loyal friend, and we're you know for Chris that we're we're writing partners always on you know at that to that point always on the stuff that Chris did. You know, it was just a pleasure to write with him and and write his stuff. But we, we go in to meet Tim Burton, and Tim is making, I think, the second Batman movie, and he mm-hmm. wants to go back to a small Pee-wee's Big Adventure sort of movie, which for me is my, it's my favorite Tim Burton movie. You know, like, I think Pee-wee's Big Adventure is his best movie. But so we were, I thought, yeah, we thought that, that, that was a good idea. This is, this is well, this, this is really cool. And the idea was Tim wanted us to come up with something, write it, and he would direct it, and Chris would star in it. And that sounded okay to me. I mean, why not? I mean, you know, I wanted to write movies anyway, so that would be a good, you know, good way in. But... Then Tim pulled out, and then they started talking about me directing, and I, you know, he was the one who said, "Well, Adam should direct it. You guys know what this is." He basically was like, "But I refused at first because I was like, one, I didn't want to. I did not, you know, we'd never set out to write Cabin Boy. I would not if I, if Chris and I were going to write a movie for Chris to star in, it would never have been Cabin Boy." Chris Elliott. Well, you dropped on your head as a toddler. Cabin Boy. When I return, I shall be a cabin man. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, January 7th. The thing about Cabin Boy, it's not super funny, I don't think. I mean, I, I that's another one I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember it well as far as... And, oh, although I will say, and Chris notices it too, every now and then it's on TV. Yeah. And when I catch it, I'll, I'll watch a few minutes, like, almost afraid. And I think it, you know, I think it looks kind of cool, and I thought it seemed kind of funny but i quickly changed the channel because i know if i hang around too long then i'm gonna see really what the problem was i have been wandering this dreary village in hopes of finding the queen catherine you wouldn't have any idea where she might be docked would you oh uh, you know what you are you're you're one of those little uh fancy lads aren't you <laughs> boy you're cute okay. gosh what a sweet little outfit is it your little spring outfit no. <laughs> you couldn't be cuter you're so adorable oh my you know, you remind me of my niece Sally. Lovely girl. She's she's a dietitian. Hey, would you like to buy a monkey? No, I don't want to buy a monkey. Are you sure? No, I'm on the yeah, What about but... Death to Smoochie? You happy with that? Nope. 
Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> no, well, you tell me what's good about it. Here's the thing. No, no. There were two movies in a row that I had a problem with. Yeah. Uh, uh, that I uh, was happy with. You know, again, it sounds like a, whiter, a writer whining, and I hate that. But uh, both. Num- but wait, wait. It's a good tonic, too. You watch the director's commentary, and they go on and on about the success that this movie was. You're like, I'm watching the movie. It's not good. What so, was that? A- anything. Anything where the people think that they've done some great work, and they haven't. I uh, think uh, every, uh. everything we're listing. First of all, I would say, I would say Get a Life is just in and of itself, pilot aside, a lot of fun. Cabin Boy, there's great stuff there. Death to Smoochie, I would say that as a whole that makes you feel good about yourself, it's really, really dark. It doesn't overcome that darkness. And so I don't know that people can get behind it. But there are... That character is great. I think that Ed Norton is Ed, great. No, the performances yeah, are great. The performances that, oh, no, here's the thing about Smoochie. The and skating scenes are great. By the way, I hate great. saying this because it sound, sounds like, oh, that's a shtick. Oh, I don't watch it. I don't look at it. But I really haven't. <laughs> I have not seen Smoochie since maybe the last disastrous screening. Oh, no, no, no. I remember I was forced to go. They, there was a premiere in New York that I was not going to go to. And my agent said, you know, you're going to look bad to the studio. No one's going to want to work with you. You don't go out and support the movie and go yeah. to it. But I was, that one and Numbers, which became a movie called Lucky Numbers that Nora Ephron directed, which all, you know, which is, it's, it, I, I, I can't find fault with the way things went down because I wrote those scripts and I sold them. Once you sell them and you take that money, it is you have given away, you know, whatever. Right. And I got to be a big boy about that. It could, but still, you have hope that oh, and there were night, there were really a lot of great people circling like numbers and and that I, I, I thought that was going to come together as a cool movie. Death the Smoochie, same thing. That was very, but again, Danny's sensibility. He made the movie he wanted to make. It wasn't DeVito, quite what I. Director, it yeah. wasn't quite what I pictured. Danny's, you know, great, and that's the movie. He loves the movie. Loved the movie made, and he was, you know, he was collaborative with me up to a point. But then after that, Nora same way. But then after then, especially when it, when it comes to the editing of the movie, they really don't want to see the writer anymore. But you know, they made the stuff they want to make. It, it, it was out of my hands. The problem that I have, and Smoochie, I like much better than the other one. Mm-hmm. Look, if it didn't work for me, but still became this huge critical and financial success, well, I guess, you know, I could live with that. But if I'm not going to get any of that, you know, then I realize, well, no, maybe you're probably right. It doesn't quite work. But over the years, I don't know, maybe it's improved. Maybe people watch now. And I know there are definitely parts of that movie that that do work for me. Just as a whole, it doesn't. There's nothing I could do about it, which leads to the book, by the way. Which leads to the book? In a sense, the, all that, a lot of times. And the reason the book, I'll yeah. tell you. Uh, that, yeah. Let's come full circle. The reason the book was such a great experience to me, and I love the book, and I feel of anything I've done anywhere other than my stuff on Letterman, the book is the thing I'm most proud of because it's a thing that I had complete control over. It doesn't have to be turned into another product, and that I realized after those movies, too, why am I writing this stuff? I'm pretty happy. I work hard on the scripts. I'm pretty happy the way they come out. The movies don't reflect the scripts, and people are never going to read the scripts. So what is the point of doing it, you know? And and now I found... uh, just you know, write you know, writing a book that writing stuff like this is is what I like. Unfortunately, it doesn't pay much money, so <laughs> the, I gotta I gotta go to L.A. and find some of that stuff too. So avail yourself of the pre-sellout phase of Adam Resnick. His new book is "Will Not Attend: Lively Stories of Detachment and Isolation." You be the judge if there's truth in labeling. Adam, it was great to meet you. Thanks. Thank so much. you. Thanks, Mike. It was great to be here. Thanks for having me. This episode of The Gist is sponsored by OneHub, a better way for businesses to securely store and share your business files online. OneHub makes companies more productive by keeping teams up to date. And with the new blazingly fast OneHub Sync technology, 
S-Y-N-C, Synced Technology. Changes to shared files, like documents or spreadsheets, are immediately distributed through a hybrid peer-to-peer plus cloud method. So your collaborators are always up to date and more productive so that they can make more informed decisions using the latest versions. OneHub also features live customer support, so if you have any questions, you can chat with a real person. See why thousands of businesses have trusted their online storage collaboration and syncing needs to OneHub. Try OneHub free today and receive a special 30% discount offer. Just visit onehub.com slash gist. That's O-N-E-H-U-B dot com slash gist. And now the spiel planned paralysis. The fourth in a series of sting videos taken of employees and executives of Planned Parenthood was released today. Like all three other videos, it deals with an extremely uncomfortable subject, the sale of body parts, fetal body parts for research. The Right to Life group behind the undercover sting videos wishes to present Planned Parenthood officials as venal, callous, and unethical. Here, in the first released video, Deborah Nukatola, the director of medical services at Planned Parenthood, talks about the price of fetal specimens. You know, I, I'm going to throw a number out. I would say it's probably anywhere from 30 to $100, depending on the facility and what's involved. In another video, one official in discussing prices jokes, I want to buy a Lamborghini. Doesn't look good for Planned Parenthood. It doesn't sound good. And the idea of selling the parts of an aborted fetus, though legal, is off-putting to many Americans. MSNBC's Joe Scarborough said as much on Morning Joe today. Hillary Clinton said it. Anybody that's looked at these videos, Michael, still will say it. Even if you're pro-choice. Oh, it's horrendous. what, what, What Planned Parenthood officials, top officials, describe is absolutely horrendous, Michael. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And the fact of the matter is... So there Scarborough tosses the discussion to Michael Steele, who's a former chairman of the Republican National Committee, who agrees with him. He's pro-life. Two other reporters on the show added context, but no one offered their opinions other than to say Planned Parenthood has a problem on its hands. Even Hillary Clinton has called the videos disturbing, though she later backed off that word, at least, and began to emphasize her pro-choice opinions. In my opinion, these videos are a failure, not a political failure. Planned Parenthood knows the heat is on. They've apologized for the breezy tone of discussing fetal body parts over sips of red wine. But I think the videos fail to document what they say they document. On the one hand, A trope of abortion opponents is to say that abortion is a huge business. Let me quote from this 2008 story, Washington, D.C., LifeNews.com. A new annual report from Planned Parenthood shows the nation's largest abortion business has made over a billion dollars in income for the first time in its history. You hear this all the time from abortion opponents. It's a big business. Abortions are about making a billion dollars. But the actors on film attempting to trick the actual doctors can only get dollar figures of $30 or at most $100 to be mentioned. That's why that one official made the joke about buying a Lamborghini. It's clear that no one in any video yet released has indicated that the fees were for anything other than the processing and transport of the fetal sample for research. And while talking about body parts may be disturbing to Hillary Clinton, please have the courage of your convictions. The vast majority of states do not allow for these kind of donations for research. 
but many, many women, if given the choice, would gladly donate their aborted fetuses for bona fide research if the law would allow it. No one gets an abortion gleefully, but if some good could come of it, if the research could help find a cure for ALS or Parkinson's, then yes, people would donate. And of course, safely transporting the fetal tissue should be paid by the researchers, not by the donors. But even though many women wouldn't mind donating tissue, that doesn't mean that the decision or thinking about the fine-grained details of fetal body parts is a necessarily pleasant thing to think about. Look, people eat meat. It doesn't mean that those gruesome videos of slaughterhouses that PETA puts out are pleasant to look at. Straight people support gay rights. In fact, most people will say, whatever a couple does in their own bedroom, any kind of couple, that's their own business. But I've heard preachers and I've heard stupid stand-up comedians graphically discussing sex acts in an attempt to convey disgust. An aversion to gruesome details is, however, a poor stand-in for a code of ethics. Disgust does not equate with a well-thought-out moral philosophy. In fact, when you think about it, most religious codes are at some level an attempt to argue against using gut instinct to define morality. No, don't stone the harlot, Jesus said. Don't cast out the leper. Don't pillory the beggar. Don't just let your gut reaction be your sole guide to right and wrong. Also, there are many professions. I'm thinking of funeral director, surgeon, the veterinarian who agrees to put your pet down. They take a certain tone when dealing with the public, but among themselves or with other folks in their industry, they might let their guard down. They might talk more bluntly. They might even make an ill-advised joke. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It doesn't mean they're breaking the law. And then there's the issue of trusting these undercover videos. They're misleading violations that aren't motivated by a quest for truth or clarity. In fact, they're edited around those very items. Why doesn't one of those undercover actors at any point just ask a doctor flat out, are you in it to make a profit? No, the undercover actors were too busy wasting the time of the actual doctors who could be off helping women in trying times, but they were instead occupied by make-believe researchers and make-believe journalists. I do respect, even though I disagree, with a pro-life stance. And I can see why questions of tactics, like how you went about making a video, they just seem like a quibble when you think the issue is one of life and death. But to my mind, these videos and the furor around them simply do not indicate that any laws were broken or any codes of ethics were breached. Well, not on the part of Planned Parenthood anyway. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, our producer, has got a long neck because she's a giraffe. Managing producer Joel Meyer wants to buy a monkey. Executive producer Andy Bowers doesn't wish death to Smoochie, but should an accident befall Smoochie, let's say it's not going to keep him up at night. The gist so hated the individual medley while he was on the swim team in high school that he started Backstroke Prevention Day. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Mark Oppenheimer, the host of Unorthodox, a new podcast from Tablet Magazine. Each week, Unorthodox dissects the news of the Jews with conviction and with wit. But, you know, we're not just for Jews. 
we also invite in a guest non-Jew to ask us questions and even occasionally offer some constructive criticism of the chosen people. Immediately off the top of my head, you guys have way too many holidays. You really do need to edit the list down. You can listen to Unorthodox each week on iTunes.com slash Panoply or at TabletMag.com. Panoply.